listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBTQ plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor, and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Mark and talking about adopting when you're in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Hi Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you Tor. Very, very nice to have you here. So I'm really interested because um, you said that you were willing to come and have a chat with us on this podcast. And one of the things about your life that you mentioned was about being in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. And so I want us to talk about that because we're getting more and more questions about it. But I guess before we do, if I can just rewind and you can tell me a little bit about how you arrived at adoption, you know, a little bit about your family, and then we can move on to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you... um... little bit of background in terms of my family setup uh so uh, yeah my name is mark uh i have a partner of uh 12 13 years now uh tom um and we currently have a child placed with us uh he is two and a half years old um, and that's andrew so um we actually started our adoption process probably mm, just over two years ago now um andrew's been placed with us for the last 18 months um and he's two and a half he was placed with us just after his first birthday. And in terms of, yeah, kind of rewinding, we uh, went with the voluntary agency. Um, and actually, the, the, what part of the reason for doing this podcast with you is to kind of openly have these discussions around consensual non-monogamy, which is, like you said, a question that keeps arising more and more um, so nowadays. Um, and it's something that we kind of received a slight element of prejudice as we were going through our own process. So it's just to share kind of my views and opinions on on how um, we might have kind of navigated that slightly differently had we had we uh, known what we know now. Yeah, I understand. Um, I'm also in a consensually non-monogamous relationship and we weren't at the time that we applied to adopt. So it didn't come up as an issue for us in assessment. But I can imagine that if we were to adopt again, I would have a lot of questions about how to handle it in my own mind about how to handle it ourselves. Can you tell me a little bit, first of all, about your consensual non-monogamy, about what that means and so on, and then we'll talk about how it came into the adoption process. Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, everyone is different. Uh, everyone has their own terminology, their own kind of boundaries, their own discussions and their own um, kind of thoughts and feelings on on consensual non-monogamy. What works for one kind of individual or a couple doesn't necessarily work for everybody. So... Yeah, I mean, we refer to it openly as consensual non-monogamy. So all of our friends, not necessarily our family members, but um, a certain certain kind of select few family members are aware of our situation. We would openly kind of discuss it as consensual non-monogamy rather than other terminologies that might be around, such as open relationship or kind of those, those various different terms that are around. Um, so myself and my partner have consensually consensual sex sexual relations with other individuals uh we don't necessarily have consensual romantic relationships um they tend to be i don't know what we would describe as relatively transactional um rather than kind of long-standing sexual relationships with kind of repeat individuals but like i said that's our very much our setup it's not necessarily something that works for everybody and everybody's boundaries are different um, and everyone's thoughts and feelings on it are different so just because that's our setup doesn't mean that it's uh it's kind of wrong or right uh there are many different views on it 
Absolutely. And has your relationship had that as its basis from the start? Or is that something that you negotiated at some point into your relationship? It wasn't from the very start. So like I said, we've been together probably yeah, 13 or so years. And actually, it was something that happened relatively by accident. So we were um, uh, not too long after we kind of got together a couple of years or so after we initially started having a relationship as kind of work took us in different directions. I uh, myself lived in Austria um, and then Tom lived in Switzerland at the time. So we were in relatively kind of different parts and then we moved around quite a lot. So um, yeah, I think we found the sexual element from our perspective, sex in our relationship, uh, there's there's kind of two different types. We have, um, uh, I guess, more romantic sex where there's a very kind of strong romantic and emotional connection. But there's also at times where in our relationship we have quite transactional sex. So it's um, to satisfy a need almost. And I think we recognise whilst living in different kind of countries and, and moving around and and doing kind of our own bits as we were uh, slightly younger at the time, is that there was a very kind of uh, transactional part of our relationship or that, that kind of sexual transaction part of our relationship that was missing. Um, and we still kind of had that um, intimate and kind of connected sex as and when we came together which was quite infrequent at the time but um, actually outside of that we kind of then started to discuss around consensual non-monogamy and how it actually might work for us and and be beneficial to us at that time and it's just something that after a couple of years we started just purely based on circumstances at the time but actually we found it worked really well Um, so something that we continued through and have continued throughout our entire relationship. And yeah, I can see really that it sounded like a pragmatic discussion at the start. You know, we're not in the same country, which makes it more difficult. Um, Do you think you might have come to it anyway, though, even if it hadn't been for the geography? I actually do. Yeah, I don't think it's something that was at the forefront of my mind, just because I think sociological norms are kind of drilled into you. Probably, I mean, obviously inherently, but from a very early age. Uh, so the expectation is that you're in a, um, a monogamous relationship with one individual and that individual gets kind of all of your uh, uh, your focus and attention from a romantic and, and sexual perspective. So, um, but I actually, that's a lot of pressure to put on one individual. So um, I think eventually we would have come to that, but it's probably, we came to that discussion maybe a little bit sooner than we would have we would have organically but I'm I'm thankful that we came to that kind of got to that point yeah I can absolutely understand that and um so when you decided that you wanted to adopt did you have discussions about whether to be out or not about this in the adoption assessment process and how did they go I don't think we had an a discussion prior to speaking to our social worker but for ourselves, I think we'd just kind of assumed that it was maybe uh, more of a private part of our relationship that we probably wouldn't openly discuss with our social worker. Um, and then for us, our experience was uh, was uh, we had a little bit of a bumpy bumpy patch uh, as we were going between kind of the various different stages from stage one to stage two in our assessment. We were actually outed by our medical officer just because of something that appeared on our on our medical records well Tom's medical records but it, uh yeah so that was an uncomfortable con- kind of conversation that we were having as we were going through and I think for me on reflection it should have been something that we would openly discuss with our social worker at the start rather than kind of being outed per se um, by our medical officer 
and then having to kind of have those uh, additional conversations and, and reestablish that relationship based on kind of new boundaries and, and kind of creating that element of trust again with the, with the social worker. It's so immensely difficult, though, isn't it? Because you're required to be open right from the start, but you don't necessarily know what questions are going to come up. You don't necessarily have a you know relationship at that stage with the assessing social worker. So it's really difficult. And then at some point you pass an invisible marker and then it's too late to raise this information. You should have raised it earlier. So I do think it's this real tightrope that you're trying to walk between being really open but what does that mean sort of blurting everything out on the first meeting or having held something back just not really knowing what to do with it not knowing whether it's relevant or finding it a bit too personal or whatever and then suddenly you're on the wrong side of you should have told us earlier I think you're absolutely right there is there is a very um, fine line in terms of how long do you kind of leave those conversations to have Um, and I think for us we just left it a little bit too late regrettably uh moving from stage one to stage two and i think if we'd if we'd have those kind of more open conversations within stage one uh, then i think it would would have been beneficial to us but i I think you're absolutely right there is a it's it's a hard kind of assessment to make especially as you're kind of understanding how much you need to kind of disclose to your social worker and how much you uh, feel is maybe not so relevant to to have those conversations around I think as well, consensual non-monogamy feels really normal if you're doing it. But if it's something that you're really unfamiliar with, then it I can understand that people have a load of questions. It's not massively visible. It's, as you say, goes against everything that we've all been taught forever. And so it's understandable that it raises questions in the minds of assessing social workers and so on. But I think sometimes to be on the receiving end of those questions can sound, it feels over-focused on as if it's a way, way bigger thing than it actually is. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think uh, as you're going through the assessment is potentially based on a lot of individuals' personal opinions. And as you're going through, that's the part of the rationale to having kind of a broad broad mix of individuals at the various different panels that um, you get approved at. Um, but we were quite fortunate. We had quite a liberal social worker. She kept an open kind of mind and, uh, and whilst she wasn't in a consensual non-monogamous relationship herself, uh, she could see kind of the benefits to our individual relationship and, and why we'd kind of chosen that. So having that open and honest conversation as to kind of your own reasons for for choosing that path and actually from our perspective made us stronger and more resilient. And yeah, I think not wanting to kind of big us up, but better parents almost in a way because we were taking quite a mature and and a thoughtful perspective on our consensual non-monogamy perspective. Um, I think there is a, an element of stigma around consensual non-monogamy and people thinking that it's just multiple one-night stands and those are going to be paraded around the breakfast table in front of your child or children. Um, but it's absolutely not the case. It's it's quite a, it can be quite a discreet element of your relationship and it's um, it's something that you uh, yeah you, you choose as an individual. Absolutely. And so when the when it came out and when the agency was, I guess, taking a position on it, were they concerned about it in its own right? Or was it more that you hadn't said it early enough or a combination of those two things? What was their main concern? Their main concern was they were actually concerned about it in its own right. I don't think they'd, they'd taken a um, well-rounded position on it. I think they, it just come to light through the medical officer 
they'd kind of looked at the consensual non-monogamy element of it and almost were a little bit scared or daunted by it. I think there's a, a huge lack of understanding by agencies around kind of uh, slightly alternative perspectives on on relationships. And I think they were daunted by that. They actually, at the time, they asked us to take a um, a pause in between stage one and stage two. And actually, as, as perspective adopters at that stage, we didn't really understand the rationale for that. We were We were kind of questioning as to what additional benefit is a pause going to be for us as a as a couple what what do you want us to take a step back and think about because all of our consensual non-monogamy was very open we'd had honest conversations as a as a couple previously and, and actually it was we we kind of had our position very clear in our minds and and we were very strong and resilient as a couple so actually that was that was beneficial to us as prospective adopters rather than how the kind of the agency saw it as as not beneficial yeah I'm glad you've um, mentioned that actually as in some of the strengths that consensual non-monogamy can demonstrate in a relationship because things around communication and um, being open about wants and needs and time away from the relationship and a broader um, support network or social network or whatever all those things are deemed positive for adopters and yet it's sometimes that when the evidence of that is consensual non-monogamy, people can be quite uncomfortable with that because I think it's so it's still relatively um, invisible, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think from our individual perspective, our medical officer had wanted to include it um, within their medical report and our agency had also wanted to include it as part of our PAR. And we kind of had multiple conversations around whether it should or shouldn't be included ourselves we thought it was a, a kind of a positive aspect of our relationship and, and made us stronger but actually the other people's perspectives might be slightly different and actually if we were to leave it within a lot of those different reports we would be we could potentially be subjected to kind of various different judgments by the professionals that you, you kind of touch along the way so be that some of the panel members or be that some family finders for example because as you go through the process and they read a lot of that detail they can quite often make a, an individual quite quick decision around you as a couple. Um, and that might be um, negative for you as an individual. So actually, from our perspective, um, we concluded that it should be kind of not eliminated, but shouldn't be kind of touched upon in, in, in our reports, just in case it could be discriminatory. And did they agree with that? Is that how you went ahead without it in the reports? They did in the end, yes. Um, like I said, we had kind of several conversations along the way, and there was there was a, a perspective from the agency that it should absolutely be included, certainly from a, a medical perspective. But actually, yeah, if you if you look at it from a medical perspective, it, it would be it was one very small kind of in medical incident that that was relatively historic, and actually that that bore no res kind of relevance to to our ability to to parent or potentially parent a child at the time a child or children and actually by doing kind of including that uh, that one uh, it was an STI uh, so it was a kind of just a small trivial piece but if they'd have included that STI in, into our report then we kind of we came to the conclusion that where do you draw the line should we be including every single cough or cold or or ailment that we've experienced over kind of the last 20 or so years um, so actually it was uh, we concluded that we should shouldn't kind of dwell on that too much but it was it was through kind of past multiple conversations with the agency and actually it was 
are somewhat challenging to have those conversations, but I'm glad we persevered. Yeah, I expect it was. I can see that that would have been really difficult because if you remember back in the days, you know, when gay men were first able to adopt as couples and it was gay men that were really the most, I guess, the most besieged by media criticism and so on at that moment. I guess to get through the process, you had to be the perfect gay couple. You know, you couldn't have any bumps in the road and so on. And I feel like we might end up doing that journey with consensual non-monogamy that essentially the first wave of people that go through who are out about being consensually non-monogamous when they're being assessed are likely to have to be doing a sort of perfect version of consensual non-monogamy with no bumps in the road, no challenges, no difficulties at any point. And I think then later we might be able to introduce the concept that it's nuanced and there are sometimes bumps in the road. It can be difficult. You know, like you mentioned in STI, these things happen and yet it it puts you even more, I think, on the defensive of trying to defend why a minor illness doesn't affect ability to parent many years later. But because of what it is and how it came about, suddenly you feel very much on the back foot. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, (laughs) excellent. Um, And so have you, along your consensual non-monogamy journey, have you had bumps in the road between you? Have there been challenges to overcome in that regard? Not around consensual non-monogamy. I think, like any couple, we've we've had our small bumps in the road. Um, certainly, it was challenging living in very in different kind of parts of the world and and not seeing each other as regularly as we probably would have wanted to at the kind of the early stages of our relationship. But no, certainly nothing around consensual non-monogamy. I think, like we said, our perspective on it is relatively transactional. Like I said, it's not everybody's view, but that sexual element for our consensual non-monogamy is is transactional to us. So it's it's not something that we've found a particular challenge around with those boundaries. And and we kind of, I think our boundaries are as long as we both agree to kind of take sensible precautions. So as gay men, we're, we're kind of both choose to, to take prep to make sure that we're protecting ourselves against, well, protecting ourselves as individuals, but also more broadly protecting our family. So both myself, Tom, and and our and our son, um, by making sure that we're taking those precautions. Yeah, no, I understand that. And um, one of the things that we sometimes get asked when we're talking about consensual non-monogamy and explaining what it is, is about a worry amongst people who don't particularly know. Well, what if one of you fell in love with somebody else? What if the very fact that you've opened your relationship in any way at all? leads you to temptation which leads you to fall in love with other people so although I know what my stance would be on that I'm interested in what yours would be and whether you're asked questions like that really based on misconceptions I think the people that we're surrounded by so our friendship groups etc are all very understanding of that and they I think they whilst they're curious at the start I don't think we've ever been asked kind of questions around potentially falling in love with other individuals outside of our relationship but I actually think once they kind of understand our our consensual non-monogamous relationship and and the strength of that that brings they often find that uh yeah like I said I think they they find our relationship stronger because of that perspective it's (laughs) it, it is a difficult question because I know of as do probably many people I know of individuals that have had non-consensual non-monogamous relationships where they've been kind of maybe engaging in in sexual activity behind their partner's backs Um, and I also know of individuals that have then kind of gone on from that and actually 
kind of that's led to, to romantic relationships behind their partner's back and and potentially then to a relationship breakdown whereas actually consensual non-monogamy is not like that it's it's very much open and honest kind of um, discussion that you would have quite a lot of that is up front but um as you're going through and finding your own boundaries as a consensual non-monogamous couple you would continue to have those conversations and actually that that strengthens your relationship well certainly does for us anyway like I said I can't speak on everyone's behalf but for us it does strengthen our relationship and and continue to kind of evolve and get stronger as a as a family unit yeah I can understand that absolutely um one of the other things that we hear is a misconception sometimes you sort of alluded to it is a perception that um, anybody that you're even having casual sex with is going to be in the house and meeting the child and around the child and things like that. Can you talk to me just a little bit about the boundaries that you have in place around that? Because like I say, it's a question that we're commonly asked. Yeah, I think there's obviously been an evolution of our consensual non-monogamy that we we had we had different boundaries prior to having a family uh, that, that we do nowadays. Um, but like I said, we take some sensible cautions in the background, like taking prep and making sure that we're not exposing ourselves to unnecessary risk around kind of HIV and um, other STIs, etc. Just because that's our own perspective on that. Yeah, I think boundaries previously would be that we would engage in in kind of sexual interactions within our own home, whilst the other was potentially out at work or kind of with friends or or just doing kind of doing things themselves but actually that's changed since uh, that was an honest conversation that we had ahead of kind of uh, Andrew coming to to be placed with us was making sure that we as a as a couple didn't expose him to kind of any of the consensual non-monogamy I think as he kind of gradually gets older and uh, and it's and he's slightly more intrigued we much like the his uh, his own story. We would potentially have those conversations with him when he was old enough to kind of understand and uh, and to be able to kind of make his own decisions. Uh, we wouldn't hide anything from him, much like we wouldn't do with his his own adoption story and his in his own life story. But for us, we just don't want that to. We don't want him to be exposed to that uh, at this moment in time. So is our, our own rules are that our own consensual non-monogamy is kind of outside of the family home or when um, certainly when Andrew is away from the family home. So if, if one of us has taken him out for the day, then it's perfectly okay for the other to engage in, in kind of consensual non-monogamy at our home. But as long as that doesn't expose Andrew to kind of anything. So that's, I guess, our own boundaries there. Yeah, I can understand that. And it seems like you've had really clear conversations. One of the things that we're asked when we're talking to assessing social workers about this is, well, what is it okay for them to ask? What should they be asking? And I think that asking about people's boundaries and how they manage safety is a perfectly reasonable question to ask, because that is relevant. The stuff that's not relevant is, well, it's the stuff that is just, like you say, years old or um, that's not really about ability to parent or keep a child safe, whereas what you're talking about there is decisions that you made with safety in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it doesn't consensual non-monogamy doesn't change your ability to parent a child or children. Um, it's absolutely, it, it can be quite a private and, and it's obviously very, it's perfectly legal activity, but it can be quite a private element of your your individual 
journey as perspective adopters but like I said is is probably one to openly have a conversation with with your social worker um, up front certainly within that stage one environment but and like like we've said for us as an individual we see that as a positive and it and it makes our relationship stronger but uh, it absolutely doesn't change your ability to parent a child or children um, and therefore kind of should be should be spoken about sensitively uh, as you go through your journey. I think that's really, really useful advice. And so your child's been with you for about a year now, and I'm just wondering how it's all going. How's family life been? Um, yeah, so far, so good. He's been with us for um, 18 months. He's, uh, he's, he's absolutely, he's been a dream, to be completely honest. Um, with Andrew's story, there was, he, he's, his profile was anonymised, actually, when we, we first um, kind of registered our interest with him. Uh, so there were a lot of unknowns as we were going through kind of our own kind of fact finding uh, in the early days. And there were still a lot of unknowns, unknowns actually when he was placed with us. And we were more than comfortable with that. We'd kind of discussed our boundaries, our kind of what we would, would and wouldn't be comfortable with at the, at the start. Um, but actually, as we've gone through kind of the last 18 months with him, with us, he's kind of made leaps and bounds. Um, he actually has a, a global developmental delay, but is is gradually making progress. Uh, he's in a he's in a, a kind of a nursery setting at the moment, so um, that definitely has been helping him make progress. But yeah, as a family, it's it's uh, it is an evolution. It it does <laughs> as much as you think you're prepared for kind of a child or children um, yeah. in your home. The reality of it is somewhat different. It's a tad, yeah. Um, but I have to say, on the on the whole, he's been an absolute dream, um, and is continuing to make progress day by day, uh, and just yeah, makes our makes our kind of family unit perfect. Oh, that's absolutely lovely! Thank you so much for joining me and talking to me today. Thank you, Tor. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to thank my guest today, Mark. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster. And on Facebook, search New Family Social or one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next time with more guests and more tea.